Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Better pray this prayer, God give me strength. God give me strength. Sometimes you feel weak and overwhelmed. Sometimes you feel like you just don't have any strength left to fight back anymore, that you're going to lose the battle. And in that feeling of, of uh, weakness, you pray, God, give me strength. Give me strength. What we're going to find out in Joshua 5 is that God does answer those prayers. God does strengthen his people, but he doesn't do it the way that you think. And he also doesn't do it for the task that you think you're being strengthened for. Let's take a look at what happens in Joshua 5. If you remember, in chapter 2, when the spies went to Jericho, they discovered that the land of promise is full of people terrified at the approach of Israel. People who are fearful of what this means because they've heard the stories of how God brought these people out of Egypt, how he parted the Red Sea, so their hearts are filled with fear. And then in chapter 3 and chapter 4, we saw the crossing of those people over the Jordan. And they crossed miraculously. They didn't use bridges or, or boats. God simply parted the river and allowed them to march over on dry land. And at the beginning of chapter 5, we learned that as the news spreads... It's happened again. The God who parted the Red Sea parted the Jordan as well. The, the river that used to be between us and Israel, they've crossed it. Now they're on this side of the river. The Amorites, the people who live in Canaan, are terrified. Their hearts melt within them. They see that this God of power and strength is, is coming for them, and they are terrified. They're terrified. Now, this is perfect. When you're planning strategy, you're going to war, this is the ideal moment to attack. When your enemy has seen what you can do, and now he's afraid to even fight back. He's afraid. He's shivering in his boots or sandals, as the case may be. This is the time to take advantage of this broken morale and, and go on the offensive. So right now, as Israel crosses the Jordan, the thing that they ought to be doing is preparing for battle. They ought to be sharpening their swords, sharpening their spears, getting ready to take the fight to the enemy. That's not what they do. In fact, chapter 5, it almost seems like, like the action is derailed and the forward momentum of Israel pauses for a moment to do some things that honestly are hard to understand. It's hard to understand why the people of Israel do what they do in the face of the enemy with this timing because what they're about to do, two things. First of all, God says, now that your army is on this side of the Jordan and the enemies are right there, you're here on the plain of Jericho, it's time to circumcise the army. Yeah. Yeah. And then once they're done with that, they observe the Passover. So they have a big meal. So they do those two things, circumcision and Passover, before moving forward. And it seems like these are things they could have gotten out of the way before they crossed when they weren't in the face of the enemy. Now's the time to fight. Now's the time for battle. Why does God take this time out to do these things? 
What is the importance of these things? It's time for Israel to strengthen itself for battle. And it looks as if that's not what's happening in chapter 5. But I'm going to suggest to you that that is exactly what is happening in chapter 5. That this is the way that Israel is being strengthened for battle. It's just not the way that we would expect. And they're not going to fight the kind of battle that we might expect either. So circumcision of the wilderness generation, if you pause for a moment and think about this, when the people left Egypt, they were circumcised. Circumcision, as you know, is a sign of the covenant promise that God made with Abraham in Genesis 17. When God makes that promise that he's going to bless Abraham and his descendants, he backs up that promise with a sign. We've talked before about that relationship between word and sacrament. God makes the promise, he speaks the word, but because he knows human weakness, he knows that we are prone to doubt, along with the word, he also gives a sign, something tangible, something visible that can reassure us. And in the Old Testament, that sign is circumcision. Now, everyone who left Egypt was circumcised, but... All of the fighting men during the wilderness journey, 40 years, all of the fighting men who were circumcised for leaving Egypt, they died in the wilderness because of disobedience. And now a new generation has risen up. And while they were wandering in the wilderness, they did not receive the sign of the promise. And God, before they enter the promise, wants them to receive the sign of the promise. So we pick up in our text, this is starting... In verse 7, in your order of worship, it's the first paragraph. We read, So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. As I said before, I can think of a lot of strategies for strengthening the army before battle. Circumcision is not one of the things that usually comes to mind. I won't go into the the details of why that is for uh, younger ears, but let's just say it incapacitates the army. Turns out all your fighting men, when they're circumcised, they're not ready to fight anymore for a little while. In fact, in the book of Genesis in chapter 34, this this fact is taken advantage of by the sons of Abraham. When their sister is stolen away from them, violated and forced to uh, marry, they enter into this, uh, this negotiation where they say, you know what, we would be happy to accept you as one of us. You just have to get circumcised and all your people. And so their opponents say, sure, that sounds great. We'll get circumcised. And three days later, two sons of Abraham come in and slaughter everyone because after circumcision, they are in no fit state to answer. They're in no fit state to answer. We don't think much about the significance of circumcision today because circumcision typically happens to children. But these were grown adults. These were fighting men who were undergoing this, it took some time to heal, as the text alludes. Until they healed, they stayed in the camp, and they waited. So this thing that they did made them vulnerable in the presence of their enemies. 
made them vulnerable. They're meant to be strengthened, and instead they're made vulnerable. And the fact that God would do this at this time suggests the importance of what is happening. As they're about to enter into the promise, God wants them to receive the sign of that promise first. They're about to inherit what has been promised to them, but they have not received the sign of that promise, and it is important to God that they have it. The fact that they they go through this trouble indicates that. There's a lesson for us to learn there as well, whether or not we should treat the signs that God has given us as things that are indifferent or take them seriously as God does. And once this is done, once the, the fighting men have been circumcised, God says to Joshua, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. This is why the place where this happens, Gilgal, is named Gilgal, because that word sounds like the Hebrew word to roll. So it's here where the reproach is rolled away. If you think about it, it's significant. We've come full circle. The reproach in mind is the reproach that the people receive because of their disobedience. Because when they were told to enter into the promised land, they were fearful and they didn't do it, and so they were condemned to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. That was a reproachful thing. After God had parted the Red Sea, the people he'd done it for didn't trust him enough to keep following him. But now, the reproach is rolled away. In that sign of circumcision, that that open wound, so to speak, is now healed. As those wounds heal, something larger is healed. The rupture caused by the disobedience of the Red Sea has been rolled away by the faithfulness of the wilderness generation. And so now they've healed up, but it's time for Passover. And so they observe the first Passover in Canaan, the first Passover in the promised land. And this is our second paragraph. We read, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. The day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. It's interesting to note where this happens. We're actually told this Passover is celebrated on the plains of Jericho. Jericho, that that mighty walled city, that enemy fortress, on the plains of that city, this is where this Passover meal is celebrated. And this truly is a fulfillment in advance of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 23, preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies. That's what this Passover was. And it was significant in a real way because it also marked the end of that wilderness experience. Because we're told that after this meal, the way people ate changed forever. After this meal, the wilderness generation no longer received manna from heaven on that regular cycle as it had once been the case. Now they live off of the fruit of the promised land. Now they could feast on the fruit of the lands of Canaan that had been given to them. What a milestone that was. What a strange thing it must have been for a generation who had grown up in the wilderness who didn't know any other way, like whose idea of how you ate 
had been dictated by that cycle, that, that pattern with all the rules around it of manna from heaven. Right? You, you receive it and you eat it. You can't store it up unless you, you get it on a certain day where you have to sort of tie it over for the Sabbath. But if you keep too much, then it spoils. And, and all of that, um, I'm said rigmarole, that doesn't sound very pious. All of that uh, uh, really important rule-keeping was part of the, the dietary life of these people. Well, sometimes we, we talk about what it must have been like for Peter, for example, to go from, from, from having a diet that was marked by so many unclean things to suddenly being told by God to call nothing unclean that I have called clean. What that must have meant for those guys, no longer to have to follow those dietary restrictions. But I think something more, a, a greater delight must have filled this wilderness generation suddenly to be introduced to this, this uh, cornucopia, this, this amazing table set before them. So many different options, so many different things that you could even store up that, that wouldn't go bad if you held on to it too long. It must have been an amazing thing that happened. It reinforced for them the idea that what they were doing was entering into the promised land. Things are changing now. The world as we knew it is fading away. And now things are different. Now things are different. The manna ceased. Back in the day, that would have been traumatic. If the bread had stopped, the people would have died. But now they don't need manna to keep them alive because they've been brought into the land that was promised to them. They can receive their strength differently than they did. Now, God strengthens us the same way that he strengthens his people in Joshua chapter 5. We would recognize this behavior as behavior that is common to us as well. And the word that we would use to describe what happens in Joshua 5 is the word sacraments. Sacrament. There are two ordinary sacraments of the Old Testament. There are other the sacramental activities, but the two central ones are the ones that we see in Joshua chapter 5, circumcision and Passover. Circumcision corresponds to the New Testament sacraments of baptism. Right? It's a sacrament of initiation. It's a sign that signifies someone's entry into the covenant community, the community of promise. Passover corresponds to the New Testament sacrament of the Lord's Supper, of communion. So even though that these acts looked very different when they happened in Joshua 5 to what we would recognize as our sacraments today, there is a commonality, there's a continuity between them. To be a little more precise about it, what we might say is that what is offered in circumcision and in the Passover is the same thing or person that is offered in the New Testament sacraments of baptism and of the Lord's Supper. What is that? Who is that? It's Christ. And this is what the Westminster Confession means in chapter 27 when it says these things. The sacraments of the Old Testament in regard to the spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited were for substance the same with those of the new. In spite of the differences, the vast differences in terms of who received them, what they looked like, how they were administered, when they were administered, all of that, there's a lot of difference here. But in substance, there's a sameness. In substance, there's a sameness because what is signified, what is exhibited, is the same. 
It is Christ. But of course, that too points to a difference as well. Because Christ, understood in the Old Testament, looks different than Christ as we see him in the New. Sacraments of the Old Testament represented Christ as yet to come. Christ glimpsed from a distance, Christ foresignified, whereas those of the new hold him forth as already come, as having finished the work of our redemption, as the purchase of it. There is a sameness, a continuity between the people of God and how they were strengthened, and us as the people of God, and how we are strengthened as well. God strengthens his people in the Old Testament and the New through what we would call ordinary means of grace. Ordinary means of grace. And what we mean by ordinary there is that these are the ways the Spirit ordinarily strengthens us. It's not to say that God can't do it in different ways. Because God, being all-powerful, can do things in, in extraordinary ways, and often does, as we've seen the parting of the Jordan and the Red Sea before. That's extraordinary. But that's not usually the way that God goes about his work through the Holy Spirit. Usually, ordinarily, the way he strengthens his people is through these things, through the word, the promise that he speaks, through the signs that exhibit, that hold forth that promise and remind us of it and insist that it is good. The ordinary means of grace for the church are the word and the sacraments. And they sometimes are very ordinary indeed. Sometimes very far from extraordinary in the way that we see them. And yet these are the means that God uses. Now the good news is, if you can hear it, if you can hear it, this is wonderful. Because everything you need to be strengthened is here. Because everything that you need to be strengthened by God is here for you in this place. The preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, the ordinary means God uses to strengthen us, to build us up, it is all here. And that is wonderful to know if you can hear it. I say if you can hear it because a lot of us can't. Because it's not always easy to see the connection between the ways that God says he strengthens us and the strength that we actually crave. We come to this place longing to be strengthened, longing for some power from God. We hear the word, we see the signs, we participate in them, but we don't feel power. We don't feel like we're being strengthened. We don't feel stronger. At least we don't feel strong enough. We feel sometimes like, okay, that's great, but isn't there more? I, I felt a little bit of something there, potentially, but isn't there more? Like, I want it to, 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 to like spark out of my fingertips. I want to levitate over the ground. I want to shine brightly with glory in a way that makes it impossible for anybody to, to look at me without going blind. And instead, I come here and, I, and I, I get the word, and I get the sacraments, and nobody can tell. Nobody can see a difference. And I don't feel that I'm going to go out there and, and conquer. I don't feel like I'm going to go out there and, and vanquish my enemies. So often, we come to this place knowing what we're looking for, and knowing how we'll judge whether or not we've gotten it. Already having in our mind what it is that we need, and how we'll know if that need is being satisfied. 
But God doesn't strengthen us the way that we expect. And if we judge what he's doing according to our own expectations and desires, sometimes we're blind to the reality that is present all around us. We don't realize that we're stronger at all because God doesn't strengthen us the way that we expect. He doesn't use the means that we expect. And because of that, we tend to discount or devalue the means that he uses. Someone was asking me recently, why do we talk about the word and sacrament as ordinary means of grace? What's the point of distinguishing those things from other things that God does or the other ways that God works? Because let's be honest, it's actually a lot more interesting and dramatic to see rivers parted than it is to hear a sermon preached or to participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So why even make those distinctions? Well, the reason why we make the distinction, the reason why we insist on these as the ways that, that God strengthens us is that because we don't see what we're looking for, because we don't always get what we expect, we tend to abandon the things that God has told us are the things that we need the most. And so it's not unusual to see us neglecting these things that for God are central. It's not unusual to see us, given our choice of how we want to enter into battle, not taking circumcision or Passover, baptism or, or sacraments, Lord's Supper, in, into account at all. We have our own ideas about how, how this battle should be entered into, how we need to be strengthened, what kind of strength we need, and how we're going to overcome. And the stuff that God has given us doesn't seem to speak to that the way that we're expecting. And so we look for other things. We look for other things that will give us what we're looking for, and we neglect what God has given us. We come to God and we say, give me what I need to win. Give me what I need and I'll get the job done. Look, I know I'm not a great Christian. I know I don't always do it the way that I ought to do it, but you haven't given me the power that I need to overcome. Give me what I need and I will be victorious. And God gives you the word. And he gives you his sacraments. And you receive those things and you say, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more. In this and God says, no, this is what you need, whether you realize it or not. You're looking for the strength to win. This is not your battle to win. I'm not strengthening you to be victorious, your own strength. I'm not strengthening you to conquer. I'm strengthening you to follow the conqueror, to follow the one who will win the victory. I give you strength to live and follow me. God strengthens us the same way he strengthened his people of old. It's not the way that we expect to be strengthened. God strengthens you, but not for the task you expect. We think we know what this is all about. We think we know the battle that we're meant to be fighting, and because of that, we think we know the kind of power we need, but this is not the way God sees it. The battle that we're being strengthened for is different than we understand. You see, in the last part of our text, Joshua, the commander of the army, this great leader who's been raised up, his leadership has been tested in these early chapters, and it's been proven. He is a true heir of Moses. He will lead his people. This is the guy who is going to bring this, this, this land of promise under the reign of Israel. He's going to do it. And yet, at the end of Joshua 5, we discover actually 
Joshua is not the leader that we think he is. Read these words. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Talk sometimes about the presence of Christ in the signs that were given, his presence especially at the table. Well, here is a presence to be reckoned with at the end of the chapter. Joshua going out, surveying the land, approaching Jericho, looking at the battle, that it is his responsibility to win. He's brought an army over. They've got to take this city. He's out surveying the walls. He's seeing whether or not this can be done. And as he's doing it, as he's sneaking around, taking a look at things, he encounters someone, a man with his sword drawn. And understandably, he kind of goes on high alert. He challenges this stranger, probably draws his own sword, says, okay, whose side are you on? Are you with us or are you with them? It's not the first time people have asked this question of the Lord. Not the last time. The answer is always the same. No. No. I'm not with you. I'm not on your side. I'm not in your corner. I'm not with them. I'm not fighting for you or them. I'm something else, something higher. No, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. If anything, you're with me. Joshua's not in charge. Joshua may have looked to be the man who would be described as the commander of the Lord's army. He's going to be the, the conqueror. But now the real commander has shown up. And Joshua gets down and worships him. No questions asked. He sees who's really in charge. He worships. God to give you goosebumps. When I read this passage, it's unexpected the way this comes up in the narrative. You've had the, the circumcision and the Passover. You know, Jericho is just around the corner in chapter 6. And then there's this brief moment where we find Joshua by himself, alone, suddenly confronted by, we hardly know how to describe what he's confronted by. Thought Joshua was the commander of the Lord's army. No. The battle can't be won by him and his strength. Only Christ can win that victory. There are actually strong indicators here that we're dealing with a a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. Joshua offers him worship, and he's not rebuked. In Scripture, if you try to worship angels, angels say, don't do that. Don't worship me. But here the commander of the army of the Lord receives that worship. And more than that, when Joshua says, okay, what do you want me to do? You'd expect the answer is something like, okay, Joshua, I've got a great plan for Jericho. I'm going to lay it out for you. What do you want me to do? I want you to win this battle. Here's how you're going to do it. But no, no. The God who thinks the most important thing once you cross the river is to be circumcised and to observe the Passover, when you come to him and say, what's the word you have for me, doesn't say, here's how you're going to win. He says, you need to take your sandals off. 
ground you're standing on is holy ground. This has happened before. The burning bush, Moses, before the burning bush, is told to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And it's after that that God reveals to him his covenant name. And now the same thing happens again, confirming this leadership of Joshua, but also confirming the fact that who's really in charge is God himself. We've seen it already in Joshua. We're going to see it again in chapter 6 and over and over again. Men and women believing that by their own strength, they will win the battle that faces them. And God showing again and again, no, this is me. This is me. You'll cross the water, but you'll do it by following me. You'll win the victories, but you'll do it by following me. Not on your own strength. Not because I've built you up into something great but because you are united to me. We neglect the strength that God gives us, the means that he gives us, because we think it's our job to win. But it's not. What we're meant to do is follow Christ, to follow after him, to endure all things. He must win the battle. As Martin Luther said, not us. He must win the battle. Only he and do this. To follow after him, we must be conformed to his image by the Holy Spirit. And the means that are used in sanctification over and over again, time and again, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, are the proclamation of the word, the sacraments. This is how God uses, these are the means he uses by his spirit to build us up and strengthen us. These means will never satisfy anyone who is looking to be built up in their own strength. They will never satisfy anyone who is looking to see themselves lifted up. The only way that these means will satisfy, the only way that this word and these sacraments will give comfort is if we are looking to see not ourselves, but Christ Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.